Section 17 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Mafson Roberts. Book 3, Chapters 22 to 31. Chapter 22. The consuls elected were Quintus Fabius Vibulanus, for the third time, and Lucius Cornelius Maluginensis. In that year, the census was taken, and owing to the seizure of the capital and the death of the consuls, the lustrum was closed on religious grounds. During their consulship, matters became disturbed at the very beginning of the year. The tribunes began to instigate the plebs. War with the Volscians and Aequi the Latins and Herniki reported that war on an immense scale was commenced by the Volscians in Aequi. The Volscian legions were already at Antium, and there were grave fears of the colony itself revolting. With great difficulty, the tribunes were induced to allow the war to take precedence of their law. Then, their respective spheres of operation were allotted to the consuls. Fabius was commissioned to take the legions to Antium. Cornelius was to protect Rome and prevent detachments of the enemy from coming on marauding expeditions, as was the custom of the Aequi. The Herniki and Latins were ordered to furnish troops in accordance with the treaty. Two-thirds of the army consisted of allies, the rest of Roman citizens. The allies came in on the appointed day, and the consul encamped outside the Capenae Gate. When the lustration of the army was completed, he marched to Antium and halted at a short distance from the city and from the enemy's standing camp. As the army of the Aequi had not arrived, the Volscians did not venture on an engagement and prepared to act on the defensive and protect their camp. The next day, Fabius formed his troops round the enemy lines, not in one mixed army of allies and citizens, but each nation in a separate division, he himself being in the center with the Roman legions. He gave orders to carefully observe his signals that all might commence the action and retire, should the signal for retirement be sounded, at the same moment. The cavalry were stationed behind their respective divisions. In this triple formation, he assaulted three sides of the camp, and the Volscians, unable to meet the simultaneous attack, were dislodged from the breastworks. Getting inside their lines, he drove the panic-struck crowd, who were all pressing in one direction, out of their camp. The cavalry, unable to surmount the breastworks, had so far been merely spectators to the fight. They now overtook the enemy and cut them down as they fled in disorder over the plain, and so enjoyed a share of the victory. There was a great slaughter both in the camp and in the pursuit, but a still greater amount of spoil, as the enemy had hardly been able to carry away even their arms. Their army would have been annihilated had not the fugitives found shelter in the forest. Chapter 23 Whilst these events were occurring at Antium, the Aequi sent forward some of their best troops, and by a sudden night attack captured the citadel of Tusculum. The rest of the army they halted not far from the walls, in order to distract the enemy. Intelligence of this quickly reached Rome, and from Rome was carried to the camp before Antium, where it produced as much excitement as if the capital had been taken. The service which Tusculum had so recently rendered, and the similar character of the danger then and now, demanded a similar return of assistance. Fabius made it his first object to carry the spoil from the camp into Antium, leaving a small force there, he hastened by forced marches to Tusculum. The soldiers were not allowed to carry anything but their arms, and whatever baked bread was at hand. The consul Cornelius brought up supplies from Rome. The fighting went on for some months at Tusculum. With a portion of his army, the consul attacked the camp of the Aequi. The rest he lent to the Tusculans for the recapture of their citadel. 
this could not be approached by direct assault. Ultimately, famine compelled the enemy to evacuate it, and after being reduced to the last extremities, they were all stripped of their arms and clothes and sent under the yoke. Whilst they were making their way home in this ignominious plight, the Roman consul on Algidus followed them up and slew them to a man. After this victory, he led his army back to a place called Colomen, where he fixed his camp. As the walls of Rome were no longer exposed to danger after the defeat of the enemy, the other consul also marched out of the city. The two consuls entered the enemy's territories by separate routes, and each tried to outdo the other in devastating the Volscian lands on one side and those of the Aequi on the other. I find it stated in the majority of authorities that Antium revolted this year, but that the consul Lucius Cornelius conducted a campaign and recaptured the town, I would not venture to assert, as there is no mention of it in the older writers. Chapter 24. Internal Disturbances. Peace concluded with the Aequi. When this war had been brought to a close, the fears of the patricians were aroused by a war which the tribunes commenced at home. They exclaimed that the army was being detained abroad from dishonest motives. It was intended to frustrate the passing of the law. All the same, they would carry through the task they had begun. Lucius Lucretius, the prefect of the city, succeeded, however, in inducing the tribunes to defer action till the arrival of the consuls. A fresh cause of trouble arose. Aulus Cornelius and Quintus Servilius, the quaestors, indicted Marius Volscius on the ground that he had given what was undoubtedly false evidence against Queso. It had become known from many sources that after the brother of Volscius first became ill, he had not only never been seen in public, but he had not even left his bed, and his death was due to an illness of many months' standing. On the date at which the witness fixed the crime, Queso was not seen in Rome, whilst those who had served with him declared that he had constantly been in his place in the ranks with them and had not had leave of absence. Many people urged Volscius to institute a private suit before a judge. As he did not venture to take this course, and all the above-mentioned evidence pointed to one conclusion, his condemnation was no more doubtful than that of Queso had been on the evidence which he had given. The tribunes managed to delay matters. They said they would not allow the quaestors to bring the accused before the assembly unless it had first been convened to carry the law. Both questions were adjourned till the arrival of the consuls. When they made their triumphal entry at the head of their victorious army, nothing was said about the law. Most people, therefore, supposed that the tribunes were intimidated. But it was now the end of the year, and they were aiming at a fourth year of office, so they turned their activity from the law to canvassing the electors. Though the consuls had opposed the tribunes' continuance in office as strenuously as if the law had been mooted solely to impair their authority, the victory remained with the tribunes. In the same year, the Aequi sued for and obtained peace. The census, commenced the previous year, was completed, and the lustrum, which was then closed, is stated to have been the tenth since the beginning of the city. The number of the census amounted to 117,319. The consuls in that year won a great reputation both at home and in war, for they secured peace abroad, and though there was not harmony at home, the commonwealth was less disturbed than it had been on other occasions. Chapter 25 War with the Aequi and Sabines. The new consuls, Lucius Minucius and Caius Nautius, took over the two subjects which remained from the previous year. As before, they obstructed the law. The tribunes obstructed the trial of Volscius, but the new quaestors possessed greater energy and greater weight. Titus Quinctius Capitolinus, who had been thrice consul, was quaestor with Marius Valerius, the son of Valerius and the grandson of Volusus. 
as Queso could not be restored to the house of the Quinctii, nor could the greatest of her soldiers be restored to the state. Quinctius was bound in justice and by loyalty to his family to prosecute the false witness who had deprived an innocent man of the power to plead in his own defense. As Virginius, most of all the tribunes, was agitating for the law, an interval of two months was granted the consuls for an examination of it, in order that when they had made the people understand what insidious dishonesty it contained, they might allow them to vote upon it. During this interval, matters were quiet in the city. The Aqui, however, did not allow much respite. In violation of the treaty they made with Rome the year before, they made predatory incursions into the territory of Libici and then into that of Tusculum. They had placed Gracchus Cloelius in command, their foremost man at the time. After loading themselves with plunder, they fixed their camp on Mount Algidus. Quintus Fabius, Publius Volumnius, and Aulus Postumius were sent from Rome to demand satisfaction under the terms of the treaty. The general's quarters were located under an enormous oak, and he told the Roman envoys to deliver the instructions they had received from the Senate to the oak under whose shadow he was sitting, as he was otherwise engaged. As they withdrew, one of the envoys exclaimed, May this consecrated oak, may each offended deity hear that you have broken the treaty. May they look upon our complaint now, and may they presently aid our arms when we seek to redress the outraged rights of gods as well as men. On the return of the envoys, the Senate ordered one of the consuls to march against Gracchus on Algidus. The other was instructed to ravage the territory of the Aqui. As usual, the tribunes attempted to obstruct the levy, and probably would in the end have succeeded, had there not been fresh cause for alarm. Chapter 26 An immense body of Sabines came in their ravages almost up to the walls of the city. The fields were ruined, the city thoroughly alarmed. Now the plebeians cheerfully took up arms, the tribunes remonstrated in vain, and two large armies were levied. Nautius led one of them against the Sabines, formed an entrenched camp, sent out, generally at night, small bodies who created such destruction in the Sabine territory that the Roman borders appeared in comparison almost untouched by war. Minutius was not so fortunate, nor did he conduct the campaign with the same energy. After taking up an entrenched position not far from the enemy, he remained timidly within his camp, though he had not suffered any important defeat. As usual, the enemy were emboldened by the lack of courage on the other side. They made a night attack on his camp, but as they gained little by a direct assault, they proceeded the following day to invest it. Before all the exits were closed by circumvallation, five mounted men got through the enemy's outposts and brought to Rome the news that the consul and his army were blockaded. Nothing could have happened so unlooked for, so undreamt of. The panic and confusion were as great as if it had been the city and not the camp that was invested. The consul Nautius was summoned home, but as he did nothing equal to the emergency, they decided to appoint a dictator to retrieve the threatening position of affairs. By universal consent, Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus was called to the office. It is worthwhile for those who despise all human interests in comparison with riches, and think that there is no scope for high honors for this virtue except where lavish wealth abounds, to listen to this story. The Story of Cincinnatus The one hope of Rome, Lucius Quinctius, used to cultivate a four-acre field on the other side of the Tiber, just opposite the place where the dockyard and arsenal are now situated. It bears the name of the Quinctian Meadows. There he was found by the deputation from the Senate either digging out the ditch or plowing, at all events, as is generally agreed, intent on his husbandry. After mutual salutations, he was requested to put on his toga that he might hear the mandate of the Senate. 
and they expressed the hope that it might turn out well for him and for the state. He asked them, in surprise, if all was well, and bade his wife, Rasilia, to bring him his toga quickly from the cottage. Wiping off the dust and perspiration, he put it on and came forward, on which the deputation saluted him as dictator and congratulated him, invited him to the city, and explained the state of apprehension in which the army were. A vessel had been provided for him by the government, and after he had crossed over, he was welcomed by his three sons, who had come out to meet him. They were followed by other relatives and friends, and by the majority of the Senate. Escorted by this numerous gathering and preceded by the lictors, he was conducted to his house. There was also an enormous gathering of the plebs, but they were by no means so pleased to see Quinctius. They regarded the power with which he was invested as excessive, and the man himself more dangerous than his power. Nothing was done that night beyond adequately guarding the city. Chapter 27 The following morning, the dictator went, before daylight, into the forum in named as his master of horse, Lucius Terquitius, a member of a patrician house, but owing to his poverty he had served in the infantry, where he was considered by far the finest of the Roman soldiers. In company with the master of the horse, the dictator proceeded to the assembly, proclaimed the suspension of all public business, ordered the shops to be closed throughout the city, and forbade the transaction of any private business whatever. He ordered all who were of military age to appear fully armed in the Campus Martius before sunset, each with five days' provisions and twelve palisades. Those who were beyond that age were required to cook the rations for their neighbors, whilst they were getting their arms ready and looking for palisades. So the soldiers dispersed to hunt for palisades. They took them from the nearest places. No one was interfered with. All were eager to carry out the dictator's edict. The formation of the army was equally adapted for marching, or, if circumstances required, for fighting. The dictator led the legions in person. The master of the horse was at the head of his cavalry. To both bodies, words of encouragement were addressed suitable to the emergency, exhorting them to march at extra speed, for there was a need of haste if they were to reach the enemy at night. A Roman army with its consul had been now invested for three days. It was uncertain what a day or a night might bring forth. Tremendous issues often turned on a moment of time. The men shouted to one another, Hurry on, standard-bearer! Follow up, soldiers! To the great gratification of their leaders, they reached Algidus at midnight, and on finding that they were near the enemy, halted. Chapter 28 The dictator, after riding round and reconnoitering as well as he could in the night the position and shape of the camp, commanded the military tribunes to give orders for the baggage to be collected together, and the soldiers, with their arms and palisades, to resume their places in the ranks. His orders were carried out. Then, keeping the formation in which they had marched, the whole army, in one long column, surrounded the enemy's lines. At a given signal, all were ordered to raise a shout. After raising the shout, each man was to dig a trench in front of him and fix his palisade. As soon as the order reached the men, the signal followed. The men obeyed the order, and the shout rolled around the enemy's line and over them into the consul's camp. In the one, it created panic. In the other, rejoicing. The Romans recognized their fellow citizens' shout and congratulated one another on help being at hand. They even made sorties from their outposts against the enemy and so increased their alarm. The consul said there must be no delay. That shout meant that their friends had not only arrived, but were engaged. He should be surprised if the outside of the enemy's lines was not already attacked. He ordered his men to seize their arms and follow him. A nocturnal battle began. 
They notified the dictator's legions by their shouts that on their side too the action had commenced. The Aqui were already making preparations to prevent themselves from being surrounded when the enclosed enemy began the battle. To prevent their lines from being broken through, they turned from those who were investing them to fight the enemy within, and so left the night free for the dictator to complete his work. The fighting with the consul went on till dawn. By this time they were completely invested by the dictator, and were hardly able to keep up the fight against one army. Then their lines were attacked by Quinctius's army, who had completed the circumvallation and resumed their arms. They had now to maintain a fresh conflict. The previous one was in no way slackened. Under the stress of the double attack, they turned from fighting to supplication, and implored the dictator on the one side and the consul on the other not to make their extermination the price of victory, but to allow them to surrender their arms and depart. The consul referred them to the dictator, and he, in his anger, determined to humiliate his defeated enemy. He ordered Gracchus Cloelius and others of their principal men to be brought to him in chains, and the town of Corbio to be evacuated. He told the Aqui he did not require their blood, they were at liberty to depart, but as an open admission of the defeat and subjugation of their nation, they would have to pass under the yoke. This was made of three spears, two fixed upright in the ground, and the third tied to them across the top. Under this yoke, the dictator sent the Aqui. Chapter 29 Their camp was found to be full of everything, for they had been sent away with only their shirts on, and the dictator gave the whole of the spoil to his own soldiers alone. Addressing the consul and his army in a tone of severe rebuke, You soldiers, he said, will go without your share of the spoil, for you all but fell a spoil yourselves to the enemy from whom it was taken. And you, Lucius Minucius, will command these legions as a staff officer, until you begin to show the spirit of a consul. Minucius laid down his consulship, and remained with the army under the dictator's orders. But such unquestioning obedience did men in those days pay to authority when ably and wisely exercised, that the soldiers, mindful of the service he had done them rather than of the disgrace inflicted on them, voted to the dictator a gold crown, a pound in weight, and when he left they saluted him as their patron. Quintus Fabius, the prefect of the city, convened a meeting of the senate, and they decreed that Quinctius, with the army he was bringing home, should enter the city in triumphal procession. The commanding officers of the enemy were led in front, then the military standards were borne before the general's chariot. The army followed, loaded with spoil. It is said that tables spread with provisions stood before all the houses, and feasters followed the chariot with songs of triumph and the customary jests and lampoons. On that day, the freedom of the city was bestowed on Lucius Mamilius the Tusculan amidst universal approval. The dictator would at once have laid down his office had not the meeting of the assembly for the trial of Marius Volscius detained him. Fear of the dictator prevented the tribunes from obstructing it. Volscius was condemned and went into exile at Lunuvium. Quinctius resigned on the 16th day of the dictatorship which had been conferred upon him for six months. During that period, the consul Nautius fought a brilliant action with the Sabines at Eretum, who suffered a severe defeat, in addition to the ravaging of their fields. Fabius Quintus was sent to succeed Minucius in command at Algidus. Towards the end of the year, the tribunes began to agitate the law, but as two armies were absent, the Senate succeeded in preventing any measure from being brought before the plebs. The latter gained their point, however, in securing the re-election of the tribunes for the fifth time. It is said that wolves pursued by dogs were seen in the capital. 
This prodigy necessitated its purification. These were the events of the year. Chapter 30 The War with the Aquian Sabines The Number of Plebeian Tribunes Doubled The next consuls were Quintus Minucius and Caius Horatius Pulvilus. As there was peace abroad at the beginning of the year, the domestic troubles began again, the same tribunes agitating for the same law. Matters would have gone further, so inflamed were the passions on both sides, had not news arrived, as though it had been purposefully arranged, of the loss of the garrison at Corbio in a night attack of the Aqui. The consuls summoned a meeting of the Senate. They were ordered to form a force of all who could bear arms and march to Algidus. The contest about the law was suspended, and a fresh struggle began about the enlistment. The consular authority was on the point of being overborne by the interference of the tribunes when a fresh alarm was created. The Sabina army had descended on the Roman fields for plunder and were approaching the city. Thoroughly alarmed, the tribunes allowed the enrollment to proceed, not, however, without insisting on an agreement that since they had been foiled for five years and but slight protection to the plebeians had so far been afforded, there should henceforth be ten tribunes of the plebs elected. Necessity extorted this from the Senate with only one condition, that for the future they should not see the same tribunes in two successive years, that this agreement might not, like all the others, prove illusory when, once the war was over, the elections for tribunes were held at once. The office of tribune had existed for thirty-six years, when, for the first time, ten were created, two from each class. It was definitely laid down that this should be the rule in all future elections. When the enrollment was completed, Minucius advanced against the Sabines, but did not find the enemy. After massacring the garrison at Corbio, the Aqui had captured Ortona. Horatius fought them on Algidus, inflicting great slaughter, and drove them not only from Algidus, but also out of Corbio and Ortona. Corbio he totally destroyed, on account of their having betrayed the garrison. Chapter 31 Marius Valerius and Spurius Virgilius were the new consuls. There was quiet at home and abroad. Owing to excessive rain, there was a scarcity of provisions. A law was carried making the Aventine a part of the state domain. The tribunes of the plebs were re-elected. These men in the following year, when Titus Romilius and Caius Verturius were the consuls, were continually making the law the staple of all their harangues, and said that they should be ashamed of their number being increased to no purpose if that matter made as little progress during their two years of office as it had made during the five preceding years. Whilst the agitation was at its height, a hurried message came from Tusculum to the effect that the Aqui were in the Tusculan territory. The good services which that nation had so lately rendered made the people ashamed to delay sending assistance. Both consuls were sent against the enemy and found him in his usual position on Algidus. An action was fought there, Above 7,000 of the enemy were killed, the rest were put to flight, immense booty was taken. This, owing to the low state of the public treasury, the consuls sold. Their action, however, created ill feeling in the army, and afforded the tribunes material on which to base an accusation against them. When, therefore, they went out of office, in which they were succeeded by Spurius Tarpeius and Aulus Eternius, they were both impeached. Romilius by Caius Calvius Cicero, plebeian tribune, and Veturius by Lucius Alienus, plebeian aedile. To the intense indignation of the senatorial party, both were condemned and fined. Romilius had to pay 10,000 asses, and Veturius 15,000. 
the fate of their predecessors did not shake the resolution of the new consuls. They said that while it was quite possible that they might also be condemned, it was not possible for the plebs and its tribunes to carry the law. Through long discussion, it had become stale. The tribunes now threw it over and approached the patricians in a less aggressive spirit. They urged that an end should be put to their disputes, and if they objected to the measures adopted by the plebeians, they should consent to the appointment of a body of legislatures, chosen in equal numbers from the plebeians and patricians, to enact what would be useful to both orders and secure equal liberty for each. The patricians thought the proposal worth consideration. They said, however, that no one should legislate unless he were a patrician, since they were agreed as to the laws, and only differed as to who should enact them. Commissioners were sent to Athens with instructions to make a copy of the famous laws of Solon, and to investigate the institutions, customs, and laws of other Greek states. Their names were Spurius Postumius Albus, Aulus Manlius, Publius Sepulchius Camerinus. End of section 17